Hello, and welcome to another edition of Crime Wave with Bonner Spring, a podcast that features mystery, thriller, and suspense authors and the stories behind their stories. I'm your host, Bonner Spring, and I'm delighted to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network with more than 4 million listeners worldwide. My guest today is Carolyn Korsmeyer. Carolyn is both a novelist and a philosopher. She's especially interested in how senses and emotions are engaged by works of art, which are prominent themes in three of her philosophy books, which I'm going to name right now. They've got wonderful names. Taste. Oh, excuse me. I got the wrong one. See, I've already messed up. Things in touch with the past. Savoring disgust, the foul and the fair in aesthetics, and making sense of taste food, and philosophy. And Lordy, do I wish we had time to talk about all of those things. Carolyn is keen to explore the ways that fiction can revive lives from long ago by engaging the reader in the sights, sounds, smells, and tastes of the past. Her first novel, Charlotte's Story, imagines the life that Charlotte Lucas of Pride and Prejudice might have had after her hasty marriage. And today, we're going to be talking about Carolyn's second novel, Little Follies, A Mystery at the Millennium. Welcome, Carolyn, and thank you for joining it today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Well, it was a it, it's such an interesting bio. It was so much fun to it was so much fun to read. I'll tell you what, since setting is very near and dear to my heart, before we dive too deeply into Little Follies, um, I'd love to start with a part in your bio about fiction engaging the reader's senses, the sights, the sounds, the smells, and the tastes. Now, Little Follies is set in Krakow, Poland, and I've been through much of Eastern Europe, but I've never been to Krakow. I have to say, though, that wandering the city with your characters was quite an immersive experience. Um, How well do you know Krakow? What can you tell us about it? Well, I haven't been to Krakow now for several years, and it is a rapidly changing city, as so many are. But I've been there five times, twice for fairly extended periods. Um, In 2004, my husband and I were actually teaching at the Agalonian University. So we were there for three or four months. Um, I was first there in 1994 and last there in 2018. And the city had changed a great deal since that time, so much so that I actually got lost trying to find my former (laughs) landlady. Eventually we met up, but I, I felt pretty stupid because I made that trip so many times and it, my feet didn't follow the right paths. Um, Krakow is a, an ancient city. It's a very complicated city. And it's one that is certainly rich in sights, smells, tastes, and sounds. I began writing that novel when I was there for a long period of time in 2004. I didn't go there to write a novel. I went there to teach and to pursue some research. And I ran out of my research materials sooner than I expected to. So I started writing a story. It seemed to me that the city itself was a marvelous setting for a story and itself could be part of many stories. And that's what I tried to do with Little Follies. That's fascinating. That's really great. When you travel, Carolyn, do you keep uh, what I call a travel journal? I try to. I used to more than I do now. But um, I I have found, I guess now that we all, most of us have fancy digital phones with very, very good cameras, I've gotten a little lazy about writing. 
But when I was first traveling, um, my cameras were cheap and not very good. And I found going back to my written logs, uh, I would get a much more vivid memory than from the fading out of focus pictures that I had. So I did rely on some of my older uh, diaries, really jotted notes mm -hmm. for some of the atmosphere of Krakow. That's that's funny. I um, every I, I do keep travel journals, as I, I probably suggested in my question to you. And um, every once in a while, I'll go back and read them. And what you said about the difference between the pictures, you know, and what you wrote down, um, there's I was I was somewhere. I was somewhere in South America. I think I was in Peru. And I wrote, I was sitting on a bench waiting for somebody. I don't remember what it was, but there was a little girl dressed in a fairy costume with, um, do I mean fairy, with wings and a tiara and running across the street. And every once in a while, I think I never would have taken a picture of that. She was, you know, in and out. But um, just, you know, just, it puts me, it puts me right back there when I see it. Um, do you do other sorts of research? Uh, I suppose I should put that in the past. Did you do other sorts of research for Little Follies other than relying on some of your, um, uh, some of your travel um, experiences? Well, let me see. For, I have to confess that it took me a very, very long time to finish this book. <laughs> so long that you would think it would be discouraging. I actually started it in 2004 and I finished it in about 2019. <laughs> so that's that's a long time. It's not a record, but it's pretty long. And um, I found that when I started writing it, I uh, then would forget a detail. And then I'd go back on a trip for some other purpose and I'd revisit the place that I had been. I did rely often on... Um, uh, memories of events that turned out to be foggier than I thought they were. For example, this story, is, as you know, takes place in 1999, the millennium. And um, Y2K, the old Y2K uh, panic, plays a small part in the picture, uh, in, in the novel. And I kind of forgot what it was. And I made a mistake. And fortunately, one of the uh, people who read the manuscript for uh, a review, uh, one of those little blurbs you put on the cover, corrected my understanding of Y2K, for which I was very grateful. I should have done some research there, and I didn't. Um, it's my experience writing anything, whether it's philosophy books or novels, that you're probably going to make a mistake. And your responsibility is to do your best not to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. But it's almost inevitable that you do, um, depending how long, how detailed your work is. I haven't found any mistakes in my book with regard to Krakow, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were some there. Another thing that was, that was sort of fun to realize is um, since the story takes place in 1999, of an important area of Krakow, what they call the, the, the Big Rinnick, the big town square, which is huge and ancient. Um, it was repaved after 1999. And in the process of repaving it, um, the people who were digging out the Big Rinnick discovered layers and layers and layers of historical artifacts. So something there that is now fascinating, and if you go to Krakow, I really recommend you visit it, is um, 
an underground museum with all of these ancient layers of Krakow. And that wasn't there when I was writing the story. It was there on my last visit. So I had some, um, I don't know, mental gymnastics trying to separate what would have been true in 1999 from my most recent memory. So I always keep with me things like travel guides and maps so that I can remember directions and placements. That's a kind of research, I guess. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I loved your your story about what's new and what's different and how you um how you how you imagine them and see them. I've done that and experienced that as well. So um let's dig into a little follies, which is indeed a book about much more than a crime. I mean, you mix in art and history and philosophy, mix in politics and the supernatural. Um as fascinating as that would be, as I alluded to earlier, we do not have hours to ex explore those facets. Um, Crime Wave um, delves into mysteries, heists, murders, opportunistic theft, uh, some of which Little Follies uh, has. Um, let me briefly set the scene. Um, it's as you pointed out in the millennium, it's 1999 and we've got two expats who have just arrived in Poland. So Carolyn, what can you tell us without giving away too many, um, too many twisty details about the crime or crimes probably I should say that are at the heart of your story? Hmm. Well, hmm. it begins with two, kind, two very different kinds of crimes that occur at about the same, uh, within a day of one another in the story. Yep. One of them is an academic crime, which to non-academics will probably sound pretty trivial, but it actually isn't. And that is that one of my main characters, who's a very upright man, he's a historian, has run into some real problems with his research. It's taking him forever to decode uh, the diary of someone he's researching. And quite against the rules, he removes the diary from the archive of the museum where he's working and takes it home. He was not in, he's not stealing it. He just wants more time with it. In the meantime, the major heist occurs and a, a man who's very unstable, a little bit demented, uh, and is the one who believes there's going to be a magic element of the plot that will, or of his life that will turn his life around, um, devises the theft of a newly, newly authenticated painting by Leonardo da Vinci. I'll come back to a little thing about that painting that is kind of an interesting twist. Um, and because of this major crime, this, the theft of this painting, the museum and the whole uh, archive in the museum are very carefully guarded and the main, my academic character can't return the diary without being discovered. So he enters a tizzy. And from then on, um, the uh, plot gets um, a little more dire as the, the, the real thief, the man who um, stole the painting, discovers that a couple of, a murder is going to be necessary in order to protect his safety. And that's where some of the uh, nastier aspects of the plot occur. Very, very nicely teased. Thank you, Carolyn. That's great. Yeah, so what a setup we've got here. Um, so this is the crime. Now, 
who do you have set up to solve the crimes? You've already alluded to the academic, and then there's the academic's girlfriend. Why don't you take it right. from there? Right. She ended up being the main character. There are, there are a bunch of main characters. I like to write with multiple points of view. So there are quite a few points of view that are um, uh, presented in the story. But the, the point of view of the main female character, whose name is Joan Templeton, um, she ended up being the one who is, is really the, the driving active force in solving the crime. She's a journalist. She's been sidelined by an injury that she's gradually recovering from. And she teams up with one of my very favorite characters, an older Dutch academic who's highly depressive, but who they become close friends. And together they solve the problem of her uh, boyfriend, the, who stole the, who, who removed the diary by, um, helping it to be replaced. I don't want to give away too much what happens there, but helping it to return. <laughs> I to, know, it's so hard with mysteries, isn't it? <laughs> right, too many spoilers. Um, and she's very brave, and she's also just a daring kind of person who um, learns that she has been careless with her personal life in the course mm -hmm. of, of being brave here, and I think develops in a way that... Uh, I found very appealing. As, as a writer yourself, perhaps you've had the experience of having characters develop personalities and do things that you didn't really think they were going to. Yes. It's a strange phenomenon that novelists sometimes talk about that sounds a little nuts. And that is the character took over. I didn't really want that to happen, but it just had to happen. And I think that's a, just a wonderful feeling when that occurs. And it did occur with Joan for me. She developed in a way that was much more interesting than I thought she was going to be at the beginning. I love that. That's fascinating. <laughs> it is. Um, so you've got, you has, let's see, you had Adam and Joan. You've yeah. got the bad, you've got the, let's not call him a bad guy. Let's call him Paul. Um, I'm going to be guided by you if I mispronounce a Polish name, please. It's a Pavel. The, the W Pavel. is a oh, Pavel. Okay. Yeah. You do say Pavel. Okay, Pavel. Yeah. And Rudy, the, the Dutch man. And yes. they just, they're, what what a, what a um, an interesting, I guess, quartet of, of characters. Thank you. Um, you alluded to Da Vinci a while ago. Before we move away from the story, do you want to tell us a little bit more oh, about yes, the Da Vinci yes, piece? Yes. This nearly scuttled the whole novel. Um, I made the uh, painting that was newly authenticated in this fictional museum. I should emphasize that the, while Krakow is a real place, the museum where this theft occurs and where the archives are, that's entirely made up. And this museum, which is not the highest quality museum, but it's big, it's got a lot of stuff in it. They had for years a painting that was thought to be by Leonardo da Vinci called Salvador Mundi, Savior of the World, which is a type, it's a motif of Renaissance painting that pictures Christ with an upraised hand holding an orb that represents the universe, the world. And um, this is the painting that they, that in the story is authenticated and then stolen. And I modeled it on a painting that I had seen years and years and years ago when it traveled through my university. Again, a Salvador Mundi, maybe by Leonardo da Vinci, maybe not. Okay, 
I chose that as a model. Well, wouldn't you know it, before I finished my novel, another Salvador Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci was authenticated and it was sold for $450 million. I think that was 2017. I might have the date wrong. And I thought, oh my God, my fictional painting, here it is in life. I can't put it in my story. And I dithered about that for a long time. And then I thought, well, Leonardo painted more than one painting, uh, often with the same theme. Um, Madonna of the Rocks is a good example of that. There were lots of Salvador Mundis. I'll just fess up to it in the introduction and that'll be my story. But it was, it was the strangest experience of life imitating art that, um, that I was a little dismaying for a while. <laughs> Having worked on a book for, at that point, probably 15 years, I didn't want to give it up. No, that is that's that's a that's an absolutely lovely story. Um, I happen to be uh, to be uh, friends with a man who has been writing about um, advances in um, artif uh, artificial intelligence, and every single time he writes something, it happens. That's right. Every All single right time. Now. That must be very, you feel like you're chasing your own tail. It is. It's chasing your own tail. That's a lovely, that is, it's a lovely way to put it. Um, okay. Thank you for that. Um, so I would like to um, like spend a moment to uh, say, I think your writing style is uh, beautiful and fluid. And I'm very curious to know um, what writers might've had the most influence on you. I suppose I'm mainly thinking about fiction, although there may have, there may be some nonfiction writers that you'd like to mention. Well, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I can answer it okay. because um, I, I admire a lot of writers and different styles and I, sometimes have mimicked them on purpose. Um, the first novel that you mentioned in the introduction, which is a, an extension of Pride and Prejudice, is written in the first person by a character in Pride and Prejudice. And for that, I didn't try to mimic Jane Austen because that would be impossible, but I, I adapted uh, my, my 21st century style to something that I hoped wouldn't sound preposterous in the early 19th century. Quite some years ago, I won a little contest um, where I completed a, a then unpublished story from Mark Twain. And I had to adopt the style of Mark Twain from the first portion of his story and write a final chapter. And I won the contest, which was really thrilling. It was the first, the first fiction I'd had published um, so does anybody influence me? I, I like dense writing. I'm not a stripped down formalist writing, and I think that's just style. Um, <laughs> most of my writing has been in philosophy where I really have tried to write in a way that was both academically respectable, but also was readable to a general audience. I mean, not everybody's gonna be interested in, of course, in academic things, because they, they are often a little narrow. But if you do write something that might have general interest, such as, for example, The Sense of Taste, one of the books you mentioned, or Appreciating Artifacts of the Past, my most recent philosophy book, you want it to be something that is enjoyable to read. 
And so I think that's always been a goal. Um, I read very widely. I also read a lot of work that is older, like Melville and I mentioned Austin or Henry James. So I think I've, I think I've sort of, I don't know, kind of absorbed so many styles that they, they jumble up and filter through me and become mine. Yeah. I think, I think most of us who write probably do that, um, become influenced at least in the short term by, uh, by writers who, whose work we really like. Um, you may not be able to answer this one either, but I'm going to toss it out just in case. Do you have a favorite underappreciated novel, something that you'd like to share with the listeners that if they've not ever read, you know, we're not talking Pride and Prejudice here, which has had movies made out of it and everything. Right. If, if there's something that you, um, hmm. you wish more people knew about, for example. Well, I wish, I wish I'd known that question ahead of time because I could have thought about it. <laughs> because nothing is popping into my mind. There are underread novelists from the past. Elizabeth Gaskell is one. I, I wouldn't say that she's underappreciated because her work has also been made into, oh, um, the BBC has made a number of dramas from works such as Cranford. I like them quite a lot. Um, who have I read of the past that, I, or the present? You know, I'm coming up dry. I'm so sorry, okay. I can't answer that question. It's okay. I'm sure there are many very good once and I'll think of them the minute we stop recording. Well, I'll tell you what, if you email them to me, I will put them in the show notes before I post <laughs> this. I will post this online and so nobody will nobody will Thank miss you. anything. It happens all the time. It happens all the time <laughs> yeah. in, in interviews. Um think it's it's always it, yeah it's always fun to uh, to to find out you know I'm always on the search for the next the next the next book. Okay. Um let's see. Um are you uh, are you uh, on social media at all, or do you tend to stay away from that, Carolyn? Well, I'm on Facebook, and I know I need to be on more. I'm on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and one of these days I'll get more accounts. Okay. They take so, a lot of time. So if any of the listeners want to find you on Facebook, it's under oh, your name? It's under my name. Also, my website. Most, oh. most every kind of information is on my website, Perfect. which is my name, carolyncorsmeyer.com. So that's an easy place to to reach me also. That's great. Well, I have enjoyed talking with you very, very much. It's always fun. It's one of the best parts of my uh, my, my my job here is to uh, to meet meet new authors, people. I well, I've enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's been it's absolutely delightful. I wish you much success, uh, continuing success with Little Follies and. Um, if you're in a position to want to promote another book sometime, I do hope that you'll come back and say hello to us again. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Thank you.